thank you very much for coming to see me today. Uh, I'm sorry I was a little bit late. I was just uh, meeting with the chancellor of the of UK and uh, got a little bit uh, late because of that. Uh, I am very excited uh, to make this announcement. Um, this is the company that I have admired for uh, last 10 years. So I always uh, respected the company and uh, look at the future of the technology. This is the company uh, I wanted to uh, make uh, become part of SoftBank. And now uh, I'm able to announce this uh, this morning. Uh, I'm so happy for this. So That's Masayoshi Son, the founder and chief executive of SoftBank, announcing in 2016 that his company has agreed to buy Arm for £24 billion. Pounds. I was actually at that press conference. Arm is one of the most successful technology companies to have ever been built in Britain. Founded in 1990 in Cambridge, it designs chips that are used in smartphones, iPads and other technology around the world. Arm is in the news again because SoftBank is now planning to float the company in New York, choosing the US over London and prompting some soul-searching about the UK's status in the world. But how did Arm become so successful in the first place? What can we learn from what happened? And should that 2016 deal have ever been allowed to go ahead? I'm Graham Ruddick, and you're listening to Business Studies, a podcast that takes a second look at stories from the past and asks, what can we learn from them today? In this episode, we look at the story behind Arm. To do so, we speak to James Ashton, who has just written a book about the company. It's called The Everything Blueprint, the microchip design that changed the world. It doesn't make the chip, it doesn't make the device. There's lots it doesn't do. And over 50 years or so, this whole supply chain has, has splintered down into a handful of companies at each stage that do one almost little thing in a massive way and do it really, really well. So Arm owns a digital rule book. This is a, an instruction set architecture. And the rule book, it's like the Ten Commandments. It's like a, a dictionary. It determines how the processor is controlled by the software. And the processor is the chip packed with transistors, which are the switches that control the flow of electrons that, d that does the computation. So the rule book has several thousand instructions, that's all, several thousand rules, but they can be configured in four billion different ways. And the key thing that you have now in the ARM, I think we meant to call them ecosystems, aren't we? Um, there are 13 million engineers writing code that runs on ARM today all around the world. So you can see there's all these different options, you know, methodologies and so on as to how, as to how you can use it. And how has it done so well? It came onto the scene when the industry was splintering and it had something. It's a bit like the decisions that have been made now. We've had lots of coverage on TSMC, the Taiwanese manufacturer. Why on earth, if you're in semiconductors now, would you build a chip factory 
because chip factories at the, at, the, at the higher end cost $20 billion. So let's just let TSMC do that because they're really, really good at it. And there's a read across to ARM. You know, why do we need to write our own rule book, our own architecture, when we can license these ideas? And it's a bit like licensing a floor plan or something. You can just take this off the shelf and you can use it. And ARM is sufficiently flexible and it develops the rule book it's like rewriting the dictionary every every few years and it's sufficiently cheap that it's become ubiquitous so one of the stats i've got that i that i quite like is that it took them 12 years to license 1 billion units uh, which is they charge a royalty every time uh, an arm design is used in a device fast forward to today and every 12 days they are licensed a billion times. It's a thousand times a second or 30 billion times a year. So that's gone from phones to cars to data centers to industrial sensors. And the growth is still there. The volume has grown, has doubled in six years. What attracted you to the story in the first place? Well, I'd written a couple of books before and I was already thinking about what is the, the next book. They are such an investment of time and to some extent money, because you're not working at a great hourly rate when you're writing a book. So I wanted to write something, I wanted to write a great British corporate story um, that hadn't really been told in the round, something that was high tech, something that was international, and something that was a really, really broad canvas. And it doesn't become a very long list if you have all those things things to tick off. I knew Arm a bit. I'd interviewed um, all the CEOs. I'd been to Cambridge. Um, like a lot of UK business reporters, I, th- I think I probably thought I knew it. And you get into it and there's the Arm story. But then I'm a great believer in putting the context around it as well. And you have to see Arm in the position of where it is in this supply chain from ideas to production to end customers and then also there's the, there's the geopolitics you can't get into this you know this area this industry without talking about um the geopolitics and there were so much issues about you know should arm be us owned who you know should it be in china there's all of these there's all of these issues i think that was it and then you just look at it and you realize it's quite a tall order and then you have to have a you know, real think about whether you want to push on with it. But in the end, I did. If you look at Arm more broadly as a technology company, but also a great British success story, what what are the lessons in terms of how we can build world-leading companies and how we can build world-leading tech companies? I think the danger with this debate is always, well, it always used to be, how do we build a Google in the UK? And then you know, now, because we've, we've you know, Arm has ascended to this crown jewel, this technology flagship, is how do we build the next, the next Arm? And I think if you try to do a Me Too, then you don't often succeed so i think it's very difficult it's the right mix of the people and the money and the timing so i think it's it's very very hard to say this is the recipe what can the government of the day do i think some of it is all you almost have to step away from the the particular industry category first of all you know any company that is going to succeed in in a global economy has to think international from day one just as you know robin got on the plane to, to asia and so on so you need things like a good visa system uh, you need airports that work you need good connectivity all of that uh, some of it is cultural you need the confidence or the craziness to push on i mean robin's ambition was oh you know i've I've taken over this this company. We've got a, a couple of quid in the bank and 12 men in a barn in Cambridge. I know, let's create an international standard, uh, international global standard for this industry, which was bizarre, really, but, but you needed that North Star to be able to get arm to where it's ultimately got. That's not a great answer, but it's. I think if we knew that, we'd all be, we'd all be building them, wouldn't we? Two companies played a pivotal role in the creation of arm. There was Acorn, the British computer maker, 
that would eventually disappear in the 1990s, and another company that's still very much around today, Apple. In fact, Apple is central to the ARM story. The links between Apple and ARM go back to a product that ended up being seen as a flop when it launched in the 1990s, the Newton message pad. But that laid the groundwork for a partnership and for technology that would go on to be a huge success. So when Apple and Steve Jobs ended up launching the iPod, iPhone and iPad, ARM's technology was at the centre of them. I mean, what surprised me is that Apple and Acorn, it starts before ARM was really even thought about as a, as a freestanding company, and it rolls through to this day. I mean, it's a key, you know, when we think of Apple today, you think of who is that key relationship with? Well, it's with TSMC, which enable Apple Silicon to become real. And it's also with Foxconn who assemble, you know, the devices, the, the iPhones and so on. But the, the use of the ARM architecture, you know, runs through Apple like through a stick of rock. The nature of that relationship only really dates from 2008, but actually the first iteration of an ARM chip made it to Cupertino in 1986. It was when Steve Jobs was on what we call sabbatical. At one point in the book, you say that ARM was basically born of the ideas of Acorn and money from Apple. Yeah. That's how close the links are between the two companies. Yeah, that's it. I mean, so... So, so ARM was a project, was an idea within Acorn, uh, and Acorn was um, had 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 huge amounts of success as the creator of the the BBC Micro, which meant that it created this device that was promoted on BBC once a week, BBC One, when there were three channels for people to watch when the home computer boom was taking off. There were already dozens, if not hundreds, of home computers available when the BBC Micro came out. But the fact that Acorn was making it and the fact that it was getting the sort of commercial positioning you couldn't imagine would be allowed on the BBC today was great for Acorn. And then I think... The, the the second piece there was um, was the government support uh, computers for schools. The the Thatcher government wanted uh, computers in every school in the country. They offered a fifty percent discount scheme to the credit. I think this is a debate that runs to this day, Graham. It, they wanted British-made computers, so that put Acorn in in the box seat. So Acorn had 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 done very very well, and then was really struggling with there's different stages. I can skip over as to what came next. ARM was kind of a, a the project for what what's the next generation PC going to need because competition is stepping up and IBM was sweeping all before it with its um, with its PC which came out in I think eighty one so this was a, a faster processor which had great potential I mean it was born in I think April nineteen eighty five it had great potential uh, but what Acorn didn't have was any money to develop it Acorn was doing lots of different projects it wasn't. Uh, particularly focused and this risked withering on the vine and Acorn were very close to winding it down closing it down because they'd been around all sorts of different companies they couldn't find the people to support it Apple already knew a little bit about what ARM was and what Acorn were doing Apple and Acorn back in the day were great competitors particularly in the schools market computers for schools but what turned out was um Apple without Steve Jobs had alighted on a device that was called, well, eventually it was called the Newton or the Message Pad, which was uh, an early, early PDA, uh, uh, personal digital assistant, or, you know, the beginnings of a, of a portable computer with a, with a stylus and so on. It was far too expensive and it, and, it, and it didn't work well enough and they needed a better processor. AT&T, the giant US telco that also had a, a very, very big chip making arm, couldn't deliver what Apple wanted. 
there'd been various pitching. There were some chance meetings at a, at a at a conference in Arizona. Apple wanted the ARM technology, but they didn't want the Acorn connection. If the ARM technology could be spun out into a new company, then they were interested. So Acorn saw a path whereby this technology could be further developed. They could keep almost a 50% shareholding, transfer some people in, transfer some ideas, but transfer in no money. And I think Apple contributed £1.5 million, $2.5 million to the project. And um, Arm was born in November 1990. The message pad now, people look back on it as some sort of great failure, and, and it was mocked quite widely in the 1990s. But as you say in the book, the technology that Apple gained from that would eventually form the basis for its future technology. And there's this remarkable stat that you have in the in the book that the money that Apple lost on MessagePad is less than the amount of money they ended up making from selling shares in ARM, let alone the benefits that the ARM technology brought to them in the future as well. Yeah, I think the figure for the ARM investment, so in dollar terms, Apple put in $2.5 million dollars. When it came later on, and this there's actually another wrinkle in this relationship, because the shares were sold from the IPO in April '98, and there, and thereafter for maybe the following four years, they they sold them down gradually. Jobs had returned to the company at this point. One of the first things he did actually was to kill the Newton, the message pad. Um, he he didn't like it at all, and so that was shut down soon after they they IPO'd the company. They needed money; they were really in financial difficulty. Apple, and so that two point five million dollar investment became eight hundred million dollars plus. They weren't about to collapse, but it was pretty nice to have at that time. What was the importance of the personal relationships between the two companies? Someone who crops up quite a lot in the book is Larry Tesla, who was who was the chief scientist at Apple and was on the board of ARM. What role did he play in in the company? Well, Larry Tesla is best known for the cut and paste tool he invented that um, that you know generations of students have been you know been very grateful for. And he took over what was the Newton project when it was in trouble, and he helped to find. He'd identified the engineers that were uh, playing around with the the ARM designs internally, and then also he built the relationship um, through Herman Hauser to ARM in Cambridge. And so he was a real. He was a real champion for for ARM. He could see the potential um, because he believed in technology for all. So it was so a lot of it was about ease of functionality and about cost and so on. So he believed in in ARM as a solution for the Newton. But then he also believed in the greater potential for the company. So he joined the board, and then even after he left Apple, there was a there was a brief hiatus, and he came back onto the ARM board as an independent director. And he was very much. He helped. I think the management did have an international view um, from day one and credit there to to Robin Saxby, who was the company's first CEO. But I think Larry had a real sense of um, he helped helped push the ambition. So, you know, there's one instance in the book when he they were looking at options, who was going to advise them for the IPO in in 1998. And I think they had smaller advisors. You know, they were not a huge company at that stage. And he very much said, look, get to Wall Street, get a big bank on this. And, um, you know, let's sell it well, I think was was the message. In your view, looking at the ARM story as a whole, how much is the success of the company linked to the success of Apple and being connected to the right company? And is there a luck involved in that in the sense that they, right from the start, they were partnered with a company that would go on to achieve extraordinary things? Well, I mean, I don't think it's a linear partnership, though. I mean, there was the there was the initial use for the Newton, then there was the profit from the IPO. The decisions that got 
arm into the first of all the iPod and then the iPhone and the iPad very very separate it's almost a it's almost a generation on it, it it's funny because Apple was still a shareholder in arm when it was uh, putting together the iPod and looking for the designers and all the components and the things it needed but it very much almost re rediscovered arm by a f- circuitous route because because arm had been used in a couple of prototype a couple of early music players mp3 players and it was because of that it was because of the the flexibility of the designs that the company had produced that it was being used in the i mean that was t- that was tony fidel as opposed to anything to do with ipo in 98 or first chips arriving in cupertino in in 86 so i don't think it's it's fair to say it's all down to apple i would say the if you're asking me about success, I think the the management that came in, the, the the first team, and there's something a little biblical about it. I think you know it's twelve men in a barn, in the in the Cambridge countryside. It's almost like a nativity scene. So you have the twelve founders who were transferred over from Acorn's advanced R and D division. It was seen as the minimum number of people required to make the venture work. And you add in the CEO Robin Saxby, salesman par excellence, had been to Motorola, he'd been a, he'd been a, you know around, around the block and really wanted to to run something. And I think they realized that the business plan they were presented with, which was we need you to advance these designs that are that are going to go into this slightly wacky Apple device and also you need to keep making the designs because Acorn have got these fancy ideas about high-end computers. They could see that was great you serving the shareholders but it wasn't a business plan there was no there was no future in it there was actually there was actually a plan a couple of years out or even a couple of months out you will need to raise more money and robin said well actually no we 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 can't be doing that they just got on the plane and they were selling hard well to everyone but they were selling particularly to to asia and in the way that he'd done at motorola you you segmented the market so how do we get one console maker how do we get one of these and one of those and so on so initially non-competing clients and then i would say the 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 absolute breakthrough was was the nokia relationship talk about that nokia relationship then which is obviously leads to being involved in mobile phones and yep. in particular Nokia's mobile phones. Well, and it's interesting because it's it, it's it's the, the the nature of the ARM business. Um, you know, when you have you think about how ARM supplied Nokia, it's it's one of these. There are three of us in the relationship type moments because Nokia didn't make chips, ARM didn't make chips, ARM provided designs. So the company in the middle that were, that that really brokered the relationship if you like was texas instruments which takes you right back to to the um uh, the origins of the industry you know jack kilby in 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 texas coming up with the integrated circuit they were the granddaddy of semiconductors and you know people have talked about portability and portable devices for years and years you can find these almost like um uh, Jetson type articles in the 60s you know everyone will have a portable this or whatever and that's where the Newton idea came from that will carry things around a knowledge navigator that will help us fly through the world's libraries and and, and of course we take all that for granted now but that was that that couldn't happen and people had dreamt about it for years and the issue always was how can we do this cheap enough and how can we do this so that it's not eating so much power it was about the cost of the device and it's about the well the size of the battery uh, that you need so i mean there were there were times i think when earlier generations of portable devices were announced and you always have the 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 ceo the alpha male on stage quite often they and this is this is apocryphal i haven't got evidence for this graham but they um they restitched the pockets to make sure devices could be pocket sized because actually these these devices weren't pocket sized so with nokia i mean the 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 nordic countries were really at the 
the forefront of mobile comms. Motorola had been, but then Nokia and Ericsson um, took over. And it's something to do with people living in sparsely populated countries and needing to connect when you're out on on the roads or in the, the icy wilds and so on. And I think Nokia wanted to take their lead back from, from Motorola. And again, you need to take a chance with ARM because ARM hadn't really got the track record in this area. And it took a long time. So when TI licensed ARM designs in May 1993, the whole industry uh, woke up to, to the potential. And the meetings that the company had been having that maybe took you know six meetings and no deal now it was three meetings and a deal and a better price and so on, just because they got with TI. And then actually from TI, and this this is something about this industry. We all think it happens really quickly. Uh, I think there's something you know it's some you know to 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 misquote Ernest Hemingway. It's something like you know gradually then suddenly. I mean the it took four years of working with um, Nokia, which really wanted to get that portable device mass market mobile phone ti who were in the middle trying to make the the technology work and and unarmed designs it took more than four years to get all the different pieces together and the 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 first phone the nokia 6110 uh, which we all think of as the first kind of candy bar phone with a snake game on it was also the first that had the arm designs inside there and that meant it was 137 grams it meant that it cost less. It meant that you could carry it in your pocket. The battery would last all day. Uh, I think Nokia sold uh, something like 20 million phones in 97, 40 million phones in 98, which was also the year that, uh, that that ARM floated. So there's some wonderful timing in all this, but you've got to give credit to the the early team at ARM who were just who were just everywhere. They were on a plane. They were just you know, networking away. What surprised you the most when you were doing the research? I think it's the 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 breadth and the you know I think anyone writing what wants to be able to write and say this you must read this this is quite important um, but I think the the fact that the chips touch everyone and the fact that ARM you know has had this momentum and there are a few there are a few you know good rounds along the way in 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 the telling of it actually because I was writing about the company during this period but that real tension between ARM and Intel was really quite surprising so Intel because it was in the IBM PC you know it. It won control of the PC franchise in the 80s and never let go. But by the time ARM was in ascendancy, PCs were going mobile and Intel had a real crisis of confidence. You know, it it didn't like the fact that this British upstart was getting a lot of business in the mobile space and it was quite keen to cozy up to Apple and the rest. So that was that was really interesting to research. It's fascinating here. You come to the iPad, which is almost where the two worlds collide, and ARM became very worried that Apple was going to partner with Intel on the iPad to the extent that they get a call saying Apple wants to speak to you and they think they're going to get dropped by Apple, basically, and instead it's the exact opposite. And Apple say, we're choosing you for the iPad and we want to work even more, more closely with you. Uh, Graham, and as a journalist, you, you will know that um, you know when I uh, unearthed the call... And the date of the call, and what they were watching, what football match they were watching on TV that night, and what hotel they were in, and that that was a that was a sort of high fiving myself moment. I thought I've got the intro to the chapter now. I, everything else just falls into place. But yeah, it was, and I think that's I think that's something. Sometimes these stories are told in a very clean, smooth way, and then one thing happened after another, and that's history. But you know, it's messy, it's lucky, you know, all of that, and to think to think that that call could have been interpreted as as the worst news because actually 
I think I put in there, it was only a couple of weeks earlier that Apple had pulled the rug on Wolfson Microelectronics, another of its suppliers for the iPhone, Edinburgh-based, and we'd seen the shares had um, tank as a result. It was Monday, July the 18th, 2016, that SoftBank announced it had agreed to buy Arm. This was just a month after the UK voted to leave the European Union and five days after Theresa May became Prime Minister. Philip Hammond, the new Chancellor, said the deal was a vote of confidence in the UK. Masayoshi Son spoke glowingly about Arm and his plans for the company, including a commitment to more than double the workforce in the UK. But just four years later, SoftBank agreed to sell Arm for $40 billion to US rival NVIDIA. That deal had to be scrapped eventually due to opposition from regulators around the world. But it suggests that Arm's ownership under SoftBank didn't go as planned back in 2016. I think that was what was interesting. It was interpreted on the day, and um, we, you know, the tweets from Philip Hammond are, are, are still there. The SoftBank investment in Arm was seen as a vote of confidence in the UK. Fast forward to the conversation we've had this year. Should SoftBank have decided to refloat Arm in the UK uh, on, on the London Stock Exchange? That would once again have been seen as a vote of confidence it's in the UK. It was selling the company, selling, buying, whatever. It's all a vote of confidence in the UK. And Arm is well. Is it a crown jewel? Is it political football? It, it's 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 everything really. I mean, what struck me with with 2016 is I don't feel he was necessarily being opportunistic because of Brexit. He just wanted it. I think he's a person that when he um, he, he sets his mind on something. He just goes for it. I mean, even we, the, the whole story around SoftBank in the last year or so has been about how do you pay down the debt? How do you, you know, get the losses under control? There was concerns about, there was questions about debt at um, at SoftBank in early 2016. In fact, in the, in the months before, they splurged £24 billion on, on arm. So I think what was interesting was the, the, the single-mindedness with which he acted and those around him acted. But I think also, you know, it was a very febrile time in the UK. I mean, we we didn't in any case have the controls to stop it. Any other country in the world, not any other country, but many other countries, that deal wouldn't have happened, I think. But but I don't think the UK really realised what it had then. Do you think it it, hap- it doesn't happen either in the UK in a different moment? And you not, mean you not, mean could it happen now? Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, not immediately post Brexit, and and I guess the allure and glamour around SoftBank slightly diminished. I think it could still happen today if uh, if Arm was listed and SoftBank came calling. I mean, there are there's 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 more grit in the machine. I think around um, national interest tests and so on. But I think we still say that one of the one of the great things that the UK has is it is an open market, and you know, hopefully, people you know list companies here thinking they can they can trade here. How much opposition was there to the deal at the time? I don't think there was much political opposition. There was some opposition from people who'd been involved in ARM down the years, and I think Herman Hauser is probably one of those. And there was some investor opposition, um, although some of those loudest investors that opposed the deal did actually vote some of their shares in favour in the end. And James Banderson at Bailey Gifford. Some of them, yeah. yeah. On the day, I was actually at the press conference where the deal was, was announced, and uh, Masterson made very big commitments about what SoftBank was going to do with ARM, doubling the workforce, all these opportunities in Internet of Things. He also spoke glowingly about the quality of the company and the technology. So I've got two questions for you. Did he stand by those commitments? 
what has the ownership of Arm been like in the SoftBank? And secondly, how did he go from a position in 2016 of talking so glowingly of the company to then as early as 2020 trying to sell it? And earlier. Yeah. So the promises he made at the time of the deal were entirely promises of his creation. There was no one pressing him. I don't think the board was in a position to press him. Certainly the government wasn't in a position to to press him. And he pledged, I believe, to double the workforce in the UK. And, you know, that wasn't just filling the office in Cambridge with low-paid staff. I think, as the finance director said at the press conference, we're not just going to go out and hire a lot of janitors. So that was to maintain Cambridge as the global headquarters and double the staff numbers five years hence after the deal, which takes you to September 2021. Now, that absolutely was done. And, of course, in the near aftermath of that deadline, when they failed to sell the company to NVIDIA, the axe fell on jobs in, I think, January, February 2022. But, you know, the question is, for how long can you expect a company to to follow undertaking. So it had done what it said over the five years. Has it been a success? I think was your other question. I think that the nature of ARM's business is so long-term. And I give you an example of long-term. So the the flavor of ARM design that went into that first Nokia is called the ARM 7 TDMI. So that was first used commercially in December 1997. Now, every year, they still sell several hundred million royalties around ARM7 TDMI, and that is how many years on, more than two decades on. The uh, shelf life of that processor design has vastly exceeded expectations, and it just shows you that it can take you a long time to develop this stuff, and then you can still be monetizing it for many, many years later. So that's my way of saying it's only been seven years since they bought the company. So I think what I can confidently say now as we're starting to see more financials as they put the numbers out ahead of the the IPO this autumn is it hasn't been a failure which sounds like a get out what was a failure was a distraction was there was a business they tried to build around internet of things it wasn't a core design-led arm business it was a a business on the side they tried to stitch together a couple of um a couple of acquisitions and and build something separate because SoftBank were really, really focused on IoT. Now, that wasn't working because IoT took longer than people thought. And when they announced the deal to sell it to NVIDIA, that unit was kind of scraped off, bundled up, pushed into the depths of SoftBank. And that final question about why, why did he look to sell it so quickly, having spoken so glowingly about it? I think it, they've never really said this, but I think it's the. I think it has to be the financials. I mean, they say, they have said they tested the IPO market in 2019 and 2020, so only three years after they bought it. So if you think about it like that, this company has been on the market for four years, which is amazing when you ha- you're a man with a 300 year vision, and after three you go, okay, well we need to test the market. But I think there's that there's something about how SoftBank is is operated. I mean, you can sell in inverted commas the company, um, even if they'd have sold it to Nvidia. SoftBank would have had a pretty chunky stake in the combined business. And when they, if and when they IPO, I mean, SoftBank will be a significant, will be a majority shareholder for for many, many years to come. SoftBank is due to flow ARM in the US in late 2023. It's an alternative plan to selling the business to NVIDIA. The UK government tried to persuade Massasson to list the business in London instead, but failed. 
Despite being based in Cambridge, Arm's US connections are deep. Many of its customers are based there, and only five of its top 12 executives are actually based in the UK. Its current chief executive, Rene Haas, is American and based in California. Furthermore, when Arm initially floated in 1998, it was a dual listing in London and New York. Nonetheless, the decision to list in New York is a blow to the city of London. Well, this gets me into the day job, Graham, which is not writing books, which is running a, a trade group called the Quoted Companies Alliance. So we champion mid-cap and small-cap companies and more broadly the health of the public markets in London. And I think, obviously, it's a shame that a company like Arm, which is still has its global headquarters, still has 2,800 well-paid staff 60 miles away in Cambridge, doesn't feel that the conditions are right for them to float in London. But really we have to we have to learn from that you know if we want vip visitors to the london markets you know vip's like a red carpet you can't be weaving the carpet when they knock on the door you can't ask them what sort of carpet they want they'll go somewhere where the carpet's deeper more luxurious you know we we have to be ready and so we have to learn from that and more broadly i would say we should really treat every public company in london as as a vip um, because they bring an awful lot not just to the city of london but to the uk economy as a whole Last thing I wanted to ask you, and that's the future. What are the opportunities ahead for ARM? Over the last recent years, clearly cloud computing and and Amazon have come much more into the forefront. Will that remain an opportunity for them? And and where else is their growth? The story they've they've got to come out with this autumn is we are not just a smartphone company. They are talking now, they've been talking for years about the potential in areas such as Internet of Things, automotive and as you say cloud data centers computer servers and i think the 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 big one there that's that's really coming to the fore now is the is the data centers and that's because amazon aws which is by far the leader in um outsourced cloud whatever you whatever you call it is using arm enabled chips in in the in a lot of its uh, computer servers so i think that's that's an area where there's where there's growth it won't necessarily be the volume of smartphone but you can charge more but to show they're a company that can stand on on several legs in, and that there's there's a degree of a growth story is what Wall Street will want to see, I think. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Roddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to read more about Arm in this episode, please sign up for our newsletter, Off to Lunch. There, you'll find bonus content from the podcast as well as business news and analysis throughout the week. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.